So welcome today to All Things Apostolic. I'm Dr. Nathaniel Wilson, and we are glad to have you with us. Uh, now, this is, the, this is the third day. We've spent the last two days uh, on a little conversation with Pastor Jeremy Wilbanks from Coleman, Alabama. Welcome, Pastor Wilbanks. Good to be here. And um, he is um, a pastor, of course, and he's also a scholar, and he is completing his PhD degree um, in one of the largest seminaries in America, probably one of the largest seminaries in the world. I know it is in America. But anyway, um, we're excited about uh, what we're talking about, and we're excited to have you with us, Pastor Wilbanks. Yes, sir. I'm excited about what we're talking about. Yes. So what, what we really started with is, uh, but we haven't even really got to it yet, is um, I would say that there's, there's two primary organizing principles that are used. When I say organizing principle, I'm talking about in theology and in biblical understanding. And these organizing principles are how one uh, approaches or attempts to find the full-orbed picture, the big picture of what Scripture is telling us. And one of the things that we talked about is the fact that uh, the Bible is the only book in the world that uh, tells us that history has a plan and that uh, the, the humanity has a progression to it in its events and in its chronology and that it is moving towards something. Uh, so when we started with this, we, we talked a little bit about, we were going to just talk about those two organizing, primary organizing principles, uh, one being covenant theology, the other being what's called uh, dispensational theology. Uh, but before we did that, we, we concluded that first we need to talk actually about some hermeneutical rules for interpreting the word of God. So we took one of those on Monday. If you've been listening um, and, uh, and been with us, you, you have already viewed that. And then we did the second one on Tuesday. I say we did them. They're just little sketches because these are tremendously big subjects. And uh, today we were going to get into the third one. So maybe, Pastor, you could give us a, a little a backup here on what we talked about on Monday and what we talked about on Tuesday and then where we're going today. Yeah, the way we talked about this, uh, the first two sessions that we had, uh, we, well, we started with four, what I call four non-negotiable points um, for me when it comes to, not, not just for me, I believe these are the, these are four non-negotiable points for understanding scripture. And uh, it's the initiation of what we would call our dispensational discussions here. Those four non-negotiable points, I'll just, I'll list them. Uh, we covered the first two somewhat. Uh, I'll list all four, and then we're probably going to come back and just talk about one of them today. The first one was, uh, the first of those four non-negotiable points for me is that you have to read scripture literally. That was number one, a literal reading of scripture is irreplaceable. And what we mean when we say literal um, we mean using the grammatical, historical method of reading Scripture. By grammatical, we mean what do the words, the literal words, actually mean? And then number two, what did they mean to the first people that heard them as intended 
by the author, God. Uh, so, and we talked about in that session, we talked about the, what I'll call a, a hermeneutical or an interpretive stack. That's probably not the best uh, description of it, but that's my description of it. It's a, it's an interpretive stack. The first layer being uh, the, uh, the literal reading of scripture that we just described. The second layer being the census plenier or the fuller sense, the third layer being the applicable sense so that we can read our Bible and it speak to us today and we can get direction for today. We can get, uh, the Holy Ghost can give us solace through God's word, etc. The second point, so the first one was a literal reading of scripture. This is non-negotiable. The second one, that, the second point that was non-negotiable was the distinction, maintaining the distinction between the church and national or ethnic Israel. Uh, and, and certainly in terms of the fulfillment of physical promises, that you find in the Old Testament and that Paul talks about in the book of Romans uh, and other places in the New Testament. The third uh, of the of those points would be the, the preservation, and I think this is where we're going to spend the recording today, is the preservation of the necessity of acts to salvation. Um, and then the fourth will be uh, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is a, that's a that's a non-negotiable. That's central to how we understand Scripture in total. Those four things, and those are bigger subjects, Bishop, than we can probably cover in maybe 10 sessions, but we can get started anyway. Yes, well, on number three that we're talking about today, uh, now I'm sure people would have questions. Why would you say that uh, one of those hermeneutical and biblical interpretive principles that you insist upon why would you say that that is uh, Acts 2? Well, yeah, so, so we have to back up into this a little bit to get this. Um, the, one of those um, organizing principles that is used by many evangelical churches is called covenant theology. Yes. And uh, the covenant theology started... Uh, basically was articulated, the, the earliest one was probably Zwingli in the late 1400s yes. and in the uh, first half of the 1500s. And the, he was in Switzerland. Um, and then there was others that joined him, uh, Calvin and uh, Buchner, and I don't know, there's, there's a dozen of them or so. And they they had what was called covenant theology. Now, if you go, if you were to Google covenant theology today, there's a good chance that you would have uh, uh, those that espouse covenant theology would tell you that they would, they would maybe, probably, oftentimes they do, start with uh, the idea that the Bible is a book of covenants. And it is. And there are many covenants not just five, six, seven, eight, ten. There are many covenants in the Bible. However, there are eight major covenants in the Bible. Now, it would not matter which organizing principle you followed, whether it was covenant theology or whether it was uh, what's been come to be called dispensational theology. We want to talk about that too later. Uh, but uh, regardless of which, uh, there would be agreement on, on those eight Covenant. So when we talk about covenant theology, we are not talking about some kind of disagreement on those eight major 
covenants. And there's the Edenic covenant, there's the Adamic covenant, there's the Noahic covenant, there's the uh, Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's the new covenant, what did I leave out? Um, uh, the, the Palestinian covenant. So um, anyway, there's eight of them. And those, I was just doing off the top of my head there, but but those covenants were covenants that God made with those people. And, and it does show, and I think everyone would agree on this, it does show a progressive revelation of God's plan and purposes in the earth in his dealings with man as to sin and salvation and, um, and to the meaning of life and all kinds of these most basic organic questions. Uh, covenant theology, though, is not about those eight covenants in its most important facets. It's about three covenants that is not part of those eight. And these are covenants that cannot be found in Scripture, but are uh, more or less created by covenant theologi theologians out of taking Scriptures and taking them to what they would consider to be their logical conclusions. Uh, and these, these, these statements are create premises that they would say, uh, create these three. So just in, just, just quickly, because many people just do not have any idea of what covenant theology means. Uh, covenant theology insists that there are three. Sometimes they say two because one gets uh, fused with the, with the other. But the, the, the classic situation is that there are three of these uh, covenants. One is called the covenant of works, and they would tell you that this was made with Adam before the fall when he was still in the garden. Uh, the second one is called a covenant of redemption. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And the third covenant is called a covenant of grace. So the two primary there, they would say, and uh, it would be the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So they would say that where the covenant of works started in the garden before the fall. They would say the covenant of grace started and they usually use one of two places. They don't all agree. Um, they would say that the covenant of grace started with uh, the call of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, or that the covenant of grace started in Genesis 3.15 when God promised uh, the seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the serpent. Well, now here's the issue on that, um, the issue on that is that they, from that point forward, when the covenant of grace is established, they assert that from then on, it's just, it's just the people of God. It's not the, the idea of Old Testament Israel or the idea of the New Testament church is, is no longer has any meaning it is just one people of God. Now, there's other aspects of it that, uh, that are problematic, uh, that God has called an elect. There's an elect that's called to be saved. Uh, not everybody's called to be saved. And so you have the idea of predestination, of uh, once saved, always saved. All of these things derive out of this covenantal approach to Scripture, which, which warrants discussion. It's not... Um, that's not good solid ground. And um, uh, that's something that we could talk to anybody about that wanted to talk about it and it would be easy to see. 
that there's problems with that. And I think even people that espouse it would concede that there's, there's challenges with it. But anyway, uh, then the, the third covenant, the reason I didn't mention it, because in my opinion, it's the absurdity of it is, is enough to dispose of it, is that God the Father and God the Son made a covenant before the earth was, before man was ever created. And back in eternity, God the Father and God the Son made a, a covenant. And this covenant is uh, that the Father um, covenanted that he would take care of the Son. The Son covenanted that he would go down and die for the sins of mankind. He would live a perfect life. He would die for the sins of mankind. And he would then, um, the Father would resurrect him. The Father would give him an eternal seed and the Father would glorify him and bring adulation to him. So, well, first of all, you don't even have in the Bible the term God the Son. There is no such biblical term. And the concept of trying to use arithmetic to describe the Godhead always runs into difficulty. Math is not the answer to understanding the Godhead, as in God one or God person one, God the Father and God person two, God the Son, that's problematic. And I think honest theologians, no matter where they stand, would concede that there is issues with that. And so many people don't talk about the, the redemption, that the three covenants are the covenant of law, um, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, and they just kind of slide that into grace. So you can see here why, why this is problematic. When you start, when you start grace at Abraham, or you start grace at Genesis 3.15, then Acts 2, which is when, I mean, it's just really plain that that's when the church began, but that negates the importance of Acts chapter 2 and the beginning of the church and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the taking of the name of Jesus in baptism. So all of that becomes uh, a non-issue. You could develop a whole systematic theology without even thinking that that's necessary to, 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 to give a full theology. So this is, uh, uh, apologize for the little long uh, dissertation there, but this gives us an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, uh, Pastor, what would you say about this? Well, I, first of all, while you were saying that, I, there's a couple of, in case people are just thinking we're making this up, I have a couple of just personal examples. Um, I have the opportunity to interact with people who are, uh, who are covenant theologians. And I, I can't remember if you touched this, so I'll just skip across it very quickly. There's, and we'll get into this further. Uh, there's classic covenantalism, which is what I believe you just described. And then there is new covenantalism, and then there is progressive. And they all have, they all have things in common, some of the things that you just described, one of them being salvation in a covenantal uh, theological system is different. Uh, and what you just talked about, the negating of Acts to salvation, well, for Pentecostals, that, that immediately, uh, that's such a central thing for us, uh, and not just for us, we, that's central to the Bible. Pentecost is where we think virtually everything in Scripture culminates and then launches again uh, into a new, a new dispensation, a new era. Um, I actually, I'll give a couple of examples here, and I'll do them quickly. I had a friend um, that I, we were in something of a discussion. There were, there were several of us around 
and I, and my friend sat across the table from me and he said, I, I, we were discussing a theology of the Holy spirit and, um, it got kind of quiet. One of the people there said, well, what do we do with acts two? And he wasn't, he wasn't of our, um, persuasion. And he just said, well, what do we do with, if we're talking about the spirit, what do we do with acts two? And nobody said anything. Uh, so I just, I sat back in my chair and I asked the group, I said, if we didn't have acts two, if it was possible for us to not have acts two, could it be, would it be possible for us to have a full orbed theology of the spirit without acts two? And my friend in this situation, nobody said anything for a couple of seconds. And he sat back and he said, no, we don't need acts two to have a full orbed theology of the spirit. And it kind of took the breath out of the room. And I think it kind of made him a little uncomfortable, but I think he, in that moment, I think he was so transparent that they, the value of what happened in acts two, the outpouring of the spirit, uh, is there, are there people that are, that work in the spirit in the old Testament? Of course there are. Uh, there's, there's tons of, them. in fact, it, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is Psalm 51 when David says, and, and whatever all this means, there's a lot to unpack there. But David said in his prayer of repentance, Lord, don't take your Holy spirit from me. Uh, so there's an acquaintance, a working with the spirit in the old Testament, but not like we have in the new Testament when the Holy ghost is poured out without discrimination, anybody can have it uh, in acts two. So second example on another occasion, uh, I'm speaking with a friend, um, who, well, I'm just, I'm speaking, I'll leave it at that. We're, I was speaking with a friend and, um, we were talking about acts two and my friend, uh, his entire approach to it is that acts two is for empowerment that the, that the outpouring of the Holy ghost that happened in the upper room and then out into Jerusalem from there was for empowerment. And I said, so you don't believe that that's for salvation. And it was, it was a good discussion. It was, it was very friendly, very open. You don't believe that was for salvation. And he said, he said, I don't want to say, he said, Jeremy, are you saying that you don't believe that Peter and James, John, Matthew, the 11 that were present in Acts two, you don't believe that they were saved before Acts 2, which just shows the difference between, and, and that's something that we will get into, but it shows the difference between dispensational thought and covenantal thought that we, well, we don't even, that there's a, like, a, we're coming from completely different places when we talk about the idea of salvation in Acts 2. Uh, it, it, what those people lived under in the Old Testament is not the same thing that was introduced in Acts 2. In fact, it wasn't even the same thing that was introduced uh, when Jesus came and walked on the earth. There's there's kind of a an overlapping there, if you will. So uh, what we're talking about here is not just something that we're making up. This is something that we absolutely have. Well, we interact with it. We interact with it. And it has huge implications on how we understand Scripture. Well... <laughs> We jumped into water, and it's not even water to swim in. It's so deep that it's, it, it, you could float uh, freighters in it. And so this is we didn't get even started today. We're going to have to do this again tomorrow. Um, 
if that's fine with you, Pastor, can you join us again tomorrow? Tomorrow we're going, to, we're going to look at this again. We will talk about some of the things that we talked about today. We will discuss some of them a little deeper about this spirit business. And uh, so you don't want to miss it. You want to be with us. Thank you for joining us today on All Things Apostolic.